Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Everyone laments the demise of civil discourse, but Portland State University philosophy professor Peter Bogosian has decided to do something about it. Along with his co-author, James Lindsay, he's written a forthcoming book called How to Have Impossible Conversations, a very practical guide. The book spans life lessons both high and low, from the wisdom of Plato to such basic instructions as don't be an asshole on social media. This week, he spoke to me over the phone from Portland about his new book. And as an extra treat for Quillette podcast listeners, our discussion features several dramatic moments in which Peter and I role-play arguments described in his book, a milestone that marks my own first foray into the theatrical arts. One word of caution, though, Peter did this interview from his backyard, and so our discussion was interrupted at several points by the cawing of a large bird, much like the crow in Game of Thrones, which made an appearance every time someone was about to get thrown off a castle. If there are any knowledgeable birders out there who can identify the creature, please let me know. And now, here are excerpts of my conversation with Peter Bogosian, co-author of How to Have Impossible Conversations, A Very Practical Guide. I thought it'd be fun if right at the beginning we role-played that dialogue that's at the beginning of your book. Okay. Do you, ha- do you have that in front of you? Yeah, I do. Do you want me to be Bogosian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do that. Peter, who will be playing himself, is <laughs> discussing affirmative action with a white female liberal colleague who will be played by me. Although I'll be tempted to do it in a high-pitched social justice voice, I will not be doing it that way. I will be doing it in a flat, uninflected Jonathan K. voice. <laughs> so, okay, so Peter, are you ready for our theatrical adaptation here? I'm very ready. So here we go. I'm going to step into character. <clears throat> you keep denying that affirmative action is fair. Yeah, that's because it's not. Who's it fair to? I told you already, traditionally marginalized groups like African-Americans they're coming from a deficit. They didn't have the same opportunities that you and I had. But why does that require manufacturing outcomes? You sound like a broken record because they're Americans and they deserve better. You don't understand because you've never had those struggles. You've gone to good schools and never dealt with even a fraction of what they deal with on a daily basis. All right, let's say you're right. I don't think you are, but let's say you are. What evidence do you have that affirmative action is a way to remedy past injustices? I don't have any evidence. It's the right thing to do because... So you have no evidence. You have complete confidence in a belief for which you have no evidence. You're not listening. I am listening. I'm trying to figure out how you could believe so strongly in something with no evidence. Do you think African Americans would be better off with Clarence Thomas? Do you think it was a good thing that he's a Supreme Court Justice? Or would African-Americans be better off with a liberal white male? You're bleeping annoying. Seriously, I can't believe you're a teacher. I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> I hate when people say it to me. So let me do that again. I'm sorry you feel that way. Maybe if you could better defend your beliefs, you wouldn't be so annoyed with someone who's asking you softball questions. What? 
do you teach your students? You're not my student, and don't get so upset. You're an asshole. We're done. <laughs> wow. You know what? We, we brought that scene to life. That was... Um... <laughs> so this section of your book is called Conversing with an Asshole. Right. Who's the asshole here? Me. I'm the asshole. And I gave examples. There are examples in the book of when I've screwed up really basic things, not listening, trying to win or trying to be right or trying to beat someone down or intellectually humiliate somebody. Those are all asshole things to do. Somebody reading this book who's like a hardcore conservative is just going to look at the words and the ideological position and they're going to be more inclined to think that my character, who was the liberal, was the asshole. Right. But this book isn't so much about what ideological position is correct. It's about the methodology of communicating with people who disagree with you. What methodological problems was there with the script you just read out from your perspective? I think that whole dialogue is just somebody who's, on my part, was just someone who's immature unseasoned and really is just an uncaring asshole. I mean, there's really no other way to to say that. When people talk about how there's this crisis in communication and no one's listening to one another, they're often talking about like college professors talking to other college professors or people in very rarefied groups communicating with each other in the common threads, uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatnot. But your research that went into this book uh, spanned a pretty diverse set of populations. Can you talk about uh, some of the people you've studied in terms of how they communicate, how they argue, how they discuss ideas? Because I think you've been doing this research for more than 20 years, right? Yeah, over a quarter century. So I, my dissertation was done with prison inmates, and I attempted to increase their desistance to criminal behavior. In other words, help them desist from criminal behavior or help them to help themselves. And so I used a version of the Socratic method with questions from the history of Western intellectual thought, like what does it mean to be a man? And just parenthetically, all the prison inmates with whom I worked were men. Uh, what's a good life? What is justice? That's from Plato's Republic. And then I adapted those and enhanced those techniques and skills with religious hardliners, diehard believers, people of faith. And then this is coming off the heels of that when it includes cutting-edge literature and a wide variety of things, hostage negotiations, more a deeper delve in applied epistemology, cult exiting, drug and alcohol counseling. So it's just this Socratic method is the core, and it just adds this really comprehensive suite of techniques to, to, uh, to do one of two things, either to help you find truth or to intervene in someone's cognitions and instill doubt. One of the themes that jumps out from the book is the idea of uh, an argument or a discussion as being an expression of shared purpose. You're trying to get somewhere. You're trying to have a meeting of the minds, or maybe you're trying to get agreement in some kind of business discussion or, or whatnot. Now, in the prison context that you just described, the goal is very clear. You're trying to get people to abandon the criminal life. The goal is not so clear when people are arguing with each other on social media. Right. Uh, if you if you have two people jawboning against each other on Twitter, what do you think the implied goal of that conversation is? I think it's. I notice you're asking a lot of questions. Either you do that regularly, or you've read the no, book. No, 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 no. That's not it. I'm a naturally good person. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. So I think that the goal of those conversations on social media is to get likes and followers and gain social currency. But I want to take a step back, if it's okay with you, for your question and ask, what is the goal in face-to-face -face interactions or discussions? I, I think a, a really important way to look at this is the toxin that's infecting our culture now, both on the left and on the right, in some senses more conspicuous on the left, but certainly pervasive in the political realm, is that we have milkshaking, we have the quote-unquote punching Nazis phenomenon, we have screaming at each other, and the evidence is absolutely abundantly clear that people change their beliefs from a point of view of psychological safety. And I, I've issued this challenge repeatedly, and I'll issue it again. You find me one person who has ever changed their beliefs, a quote-unquote Nazi, as a result of being punched in the head. And then I'm willing to take a serious look at that methodology for helping people revise their beliefs. There's just simply no evidence for that. Let's talk a little bit about the effect of having an audience. Because presumably when you were doing these interviews in a prison setting, these, these weren't being broadcast to any kind of audience. And yet one of the distinguishing features of social media is there's a performative quality. Exactly. And, and how does it affect the odds of people reaching any kind of productive point in an argument? Yeah, that's a great question. It radically decreases it. I'll even go beyond that. These conversations are best one-on-one. -on -one, and every time you add one person, that person tends to reinforce the other people's beliefs. One of the implicit conclusions, and I think a lot of people would be unsettled by this, is kind of that if you care about having productive discourse as opposed to having high-profile discourse that gains you a lot of followers and whatnot, you're just going to spend a lot less time on social media. And I spend probably too much time on social media. Is there some kind of cognitive dissonance going on in my own mind that says, oh yeah, I'm engaged in productive dialogue, but really I'm not? I guess if I may be blunt with you, I'm not sure that's the optimal or the ideal question to ask. Uh, how much time do you spend on social media? Between Facebook and Twitter, probably 45 minutes a day. Okay. Well, just as a, an aside, I deleted my Facebook account because I was being harassed by people and it turned out to be one of the best time savers ever. But can, can I ask you a personal question? Yeah, sure. Are you lonely in your life? I don't think so, but I do think there is a sort of neediness yeah. which asserts itself, much like loneliness, for people who are in professions where their status is measured in attention. That doesn't just mean journalists, but it also could mean celebrities or entertainers, mm. uh, people who have millions of followers. And there's this idea, which I'm not even sure how to characterize it, it's sort of this mixture of, of loneliness guilt, ambition, that says that if you're not advancing an idea or what purports to be an idea that people are listening to and paying attention to, mm. then somehow that day has gone by the wayside and you're, you're wasting your employer's time or you're wasting your time, like that you need to kind of be in the game of getting your ideas out there. And I'm not sure that qualifies as loneliness, but it might qualify as, say, professional insecurity. Yeah, I, I think I also suffer from some of that and you know the the work of Johan Hari has been really interesting he writes 
about addiction and mental health issues and the role of loneliness that loneliness plays. I think that's an often overlooked component to all of this. Many people want to discharge those feelings or impulses on social media. Sometimes those are just impulses of rage. They want to just yell at everybody or why is everyone so stupid? They can't understand. And one of the reasons that we wrote how to have impossible conversations is that it's um, not only is it a prophylactic against incivility, even in the most extreme forms, like an antidote to to, uh, to milkshaking or punching people. But I think that there's something profound in having lost the ability or lost the opportunity to see those conversations modeled. You know, at, at Portland State, I did an event with Brett and Heather and Christina Hoff Summers. Sorry, t- tell people who Brett and Heather are. Oh, excuse me. Um, they are the, they've become uh, good friends. They're the folks from Evergreen when they were there with the, in the meltdown. And if you want a little a primer, you should watch the Rogan interview with Brett and Heather. And then the Dave Rubin has a great interview with them. And they are just the most decent, kind, genuine sincere people I truly I have ever met. They are paragons of human decency. And Brett is firmly on the left and they accused him of being a racist. They were going car to car with bats looking for him. You know, the Nazi, of course, if you don't know anything about history, Jews or Ju- Judaism and Nazism are at odds to say the least. So we did an event at Portland State and a associate professor, a tenured professor, and I really want you to think about this for a moment, started yelling in the audience and disrupting the event. The people see this and they, oh, this is my professor. So you've got, so I'm going to pause because I think there's a bird in your backyard. Who's, there is a bird. That, that bird needs to read your book. <laughs> so you've got a chapter called The Seven Fundamentals of Good Conversations. Most of these seem right to me, but there's one that I think is going to give people pause. Number five shoot the messenger, don't deliver your truth, which is going to sound counterintuitive to people because everything about discourse, especially on campus these days, is my truth is this, my experience is this. Everything is seen through almost like a solipsism. This runs exactly counter to that. That's correct. Tell me what you mean by that. So your analysis was spot on. So this is where I'm going to offer there's the bird again. This is where I'm going to offer two ways of thinking about this. The first is there is a subjective turn that's in our culture now, and that's the turn away from objectivity and toward personal experiences. And those personal experiences are elevated against the backdrop of an objectively knowable world. So what we see happening is everyone claiming that their truth is their truth must override. You know, there's something about the primacy of their subjective experiences that they demand to be listened to and and they they have their own truth, you running around with your truth, I have my truth. Okay, so this is, this is particularly insidious and this makes having conversations extremely difficult. Not impossible, but extremely difficult. If you have your truth and I have my truth, what if those are incommensurable? How how can I get to your truth? How can you get to my truth? So it depends on your goal in the conversation. If you want to change someone's mind or help them 
think more sincerely about what they believe. A any attempt to either offer evidence or to tell your truth probably won't work. Instead, there are other methods that come up later in the book in which there are certain targeted ways of asking questions that you can either elicit contradictions from someone in their own belief system or you can help people reflect more deeply. If your goal is to help people change their beliefs or revise their opinions on something, delivering your message is counter to that. It's antithetical to that goal. It will not work and as you've noticed, the the book has a tremendous number of citations. All of the evidence for that is crystal clear. One of the techniques that you offer is that sometimes you just have to admit defeat. That I think the term you use is walk away. Right. You have to know when to, to quit a conversation. What are the signs, because I think a lot of people listening to this, probably like you, have stories in their head of like, gee, I really should have walked away from that yeah. conversation. You actually relate a story about uh, trying to convince somebody, I think, not to be an L.A. Lakers right. fan uh, with predictable results. <laughs> what are the indications that it's time to shut down a conversation? Okay, I, I want to change one word. I wouldn't say defeat. I wouldn't use the word defeat there. So there are two things. One, there's a technique in the book called change your mind on the spot. It's astonishingly effective. If you're having a conversation with somebody and you realize that they've said something like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that about immigration, or oh, I didn't have that particular data point about how many kids were murdered by guns in El Paso, or whatever, what happens to be, then you just change your mind on the spot and you say, wow, thanks, I didn't know that. I've changed my mind. That's very disarming. So that can be used in conjunction with some of the, the ideas for if somebody gets, usually it's anger, so a few things there. One, I will not engage in a conversation if somebody has harassed me in the past or is currently harassing me in the future. So I have a significant number of people who must live to wake up to harass me. I will not speak to them. Two, if you're in a conversation with somebody and they just start screaming at you, now it depends. If you know them and they're your good friends, there's techniques in I think chapter five dealing with anger for how to deal with that. If you don't know them, then it's clearly best to walk away and walk away in a public way. And the book details how to do that. So anger is a particularly good way. If somebody is physically invading your space, that's another good way to know about it. Um, but even then, there, there are ways to deal with it. So re real quick, I remember when I was teaching in the prisons, somebody walked up to me literally the first day that I was there, a massive man. Of course, I was much younger then. So uh, it'd be extremely big man. And he he had a, a um, book in his hand. And I didn't know what the book was. And he went maybe an inch and a half from my face. And he said to me, do you know what a bunghole is? Do you know what a bunghole is? And I said, uh, actually, I do. He said, well, what is it? And I said, it's an asshole. And he said, no, it's a tap on a keg of beer. And he pulls out this dictionary and the, you know, bunghole was highlighted in the dictionary. He starts pointing it to me. He's like, look, look, there it is. There it is. And I said, wow, thank you. I never knew that. Thank you for teaching me. And it just changed the whole dynamic. It just changed the whole interaction. There is this fashion, especially in public fora, for walking away preemptively when people will say things like, as a baseline, 
I will only talk to people who respect everybody else's humanity or who right. believe in equality or who believe in freedom or who believe in democracy or this or that. Right. And they're often using vague terms which basically are a stand-in for saying, I'm only going to talk to people who already agree with my, my views. That's correct. But they peacock the fact that they're only going to talk to people who agree with them. Is this something new, or is this just like an extension of religious types from past centuries who, who would say, you know, I'm happy to have debates, but it will only be a debate with somebody who accepts the divinity of Jesus Christ, or, or the equivalent in other religions? I don't think the analog to Christianity works. In fact, quite quite the contrary. I think that Christians have a long history of apologetics from 1 Peter 3.15, of defense of their faith, not apologizing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for their faith. But I, I think that, that is embedded in the structure of Christianity and found throughout Christendom. I think that the recent trend toward not wanting to platform someone or g give them a platform to, to discuss ideas and to de-platform them, I think that's fairly recent, but it's also been institutionalized, which makes it a problem. And it's been institutionalized in, in, in um, uh, colleges of higher education. They have you know, just read a piece in the Wall Street Journal about biased response teams, and I've done pieces on that. or offices of diversity and inclusion. So I think it's a complex problem in which um, it's come to the fore in the last, since maybe two, two, I think Jonathan Haidt puts it at 2013, 2014, the NYU psychologist, social psychologist. And I think now having those conversations is even more difficult because of the structural and institutional barriers to have them. You use a term called outsourcing in your book. Right. And it means basically bringing in evidence, third-party information. What's interesting, it turns out when, when you bury people in, in evidence and information right. and data points, you actually don't usually convince them. In fact, I think there are studies that show that when people read a whole bunch of information that, that contradicts their point of view, they actually just become more recalcitrant in regard to their previous point of view. But you have strategies for how to bring evidence and third-party information into a conversation. And I think one of your tips is you bring it in toward the end of the conversation. Could you describe how that works? Sure. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to pull out your phone in a conversation, which you often see happening. You, you There is a section in the book about things not to do. So outsourcing is, is important because it will enable you to figure out you can ask questions like, well, what expert should I consult? Or you can ask a good, some good questions are, give me the names of two to three people on the other side of the issue you think have the best arguments against your point. And then based upon how they answer that question, you can, you can infer from that how familiar they, familiar they are with their, the position and the arguments against that position. And especially Recently, you'll find that people will not know the arguments against their position or they'll know them in a superficial level or they won't know the people who made them and they won't know how to rebut. They'll know how to rebut only the surface level arguments. So we initially called it epistemic outsourcing, but we had to <laughs> drop the term epistemic because it was kind of – I don't know. It's kind of uh, – sorry about the birds. What kind of bird is that? 
Dude, I don't know. There are birds, dogs. Are you in Costa Rica or something? No, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I don't know. Well, we're going to own the bird. The bird is, we're not going to pretend the bird doesn't exist. Now, you talk about something called disconfirmation. One of your strategies is called seek disconfirmation. And rather than explain what that means, I want to want to ask you if we can do a little role play here. Please, please do. This one, this one plays to my strength because it's um, it seems to be two middle-aged men having a conversation, and so I don't have to pretend to be a female liberal. So in this one, uh, this is on page one hundred four of your book, and I'm just going to set it up. You, you say, "I, Peter, I had the following conversation with one of my father's friends, DB." Right. DB was economically and socially conservative, lived in a retirement community in Las Vegas. DB's in his early 60s, and and we're going to start the following conversation. Once again, you're going to be playing Peter. I'm DB. Okay. There's just no question that the media is biased against Trump. I don't understand if you want to admit that or you don't believe it. I'm just trying to figure out the best example of this. What's your best example? I told you already, this entire Russian malarkey. It's all horseshit, all of it. The liberal media establishment is absolutely out to get Trump. Okay, so what would it take to change your mind? I mean, what evidence could you be provided with that would convince you he colluded with the Russians before the election? I just explained to you why it's all fake. I mean, hypothetically, what evidence would persuade you? What would you find persuasive? I'm not saying I can provide that evidence. I'm just trying to figure out what it would be. There's no evidence because it's all bullshit. Okay. Well, maybe I'm not doing a good job of explaining myself. Let's try this. If WikiLeaks exposed emails from someone high up in Trump's camp that detailed collusion, would you believe it then? No, I believe that they were all faked. What if they were corroborated somehow by other emails from other leak sources? Those would be fake too. What if Putin came out on Russian TV and told the world he collaborated with Trump before the election? Would you believe it then? Hmm. No, he'd just be doing that to ruin the reputation of the United States. What if Trump admitted it under oath? Would you believe it then? Hmm. I don't know. So the, I, I want to ask a, 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 a meta question about this. This unfolded at a social meeting when you were with your dad, correct? No, my dad had just died, actually. And I was in Las Vegas uh, at his funeral, and his friends had invited me to their home. And that is really a verbatim conversation I had with somebody in their home. Okay, so let's go back to this term, disconfirmation. Tell me what seeking disconfirmation, which you advocate, what does that mean in the context of this argument that we just played out? So this is one of the most powerful tools that anybody can use, and it becomes exponentially more powerful when you combine it with other tools like scales. So the typical question that people, I'm gonna answer your question, I'm just gonna get to it in a second. Usually the question that people ask is, what evidence do you have for that belief? Or what's your evidence for that? That's a very reasonable question. But the problem with that question is, when somebody gives their evidence for their belief, they listen to what they're saying and they become even more entrenched in it. So it's it's easy to give evidence for a belief. It's very difficult to give disconfirmation criteria. So disconfirmation criteria are under what conditions could a belief be false? I'm not saying those 
conditions operate. I'm just saying, what would the, what would that look like to you? What would it look like to you to falsify that belief? That is an extraordinarily powerful question that creates a wedge in somebody's cognitions to help them seek. It, it taps into their internal ideas about truth and they generate the conditions for falsity of their belief as opposed to you telling them why their belief isn't true. Uh, we, don't, we don't have time to go in detail through all the techniques you discuss, but you do have a chapter called Six Expert Skills to Engage the Closed-Minded. So you've got synthesis, help vent the steam, alter casting. I'm going to ask you to explain what that means. Then you've got host, hostage negotiations, probe the limits, right. and something called counter-intervention strategies. So we almost didn't put in alter casting because it's an ethically murky technique. Basically, you cast somebody in a role that they live up to. And for example, if somebody is texting and you say, wow, you're a really fast texter, then they text quickly and they want to text quickly to show that they're a fast texter. Or wow, you seem really experienced. Or you can alter cast someone anywhere you want. It's an incredibly simple technique. I'm familiar with alter casting, although I have never heard that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once did a story for a business magazine about the techniques of successful salesmen. And one of them is, you know, you walk into somebody's house or if you're a door-to-door salesman, you say, well, I can tell by looking around here that you're somebody who understands quality and value. That's alter casting. Yeah. And then instantly, you know, you've, you're selling them a high quality, high value vacuum cleaner, right? right? For, so it sounds like it's the vacuum cleaner strategy, but with political arguments. Yeah, you can. Well, not political, any, anything really. We advocate two things, taking their favorite solution off the table and alter casting civility. And then how do you, what do you do if someone lives by a belief? They claim to live by a belief they couldn't possibly live by. And the example was someone at Portland State University said, this is a very common belief now, if a white man told me two plus two equals four, I wouldn't believe him. So many people would hear something like that and they'd say, "There's just this person is too far gone, there's no way I can have a conversation with them. So the book lays out a very specific template of exactly what you should say and exactly what how they could respond and then it tells you it's just a template. It's just it's literally a template. They say this, you say this, they say this, boom. Aporia, as the Greeks say, or bewilderment, wonderment, or uh, belief revision at the end, or pausing, or it just gives you a template of exactly what to say. You didn't write this book yourself. It's mm-hmm. uh, co-authored with uh, James Lindsay, who's a researcher. And uh, in fact, he recently wrote a great piece for Quillette. Could you describe a little how the division of labor worked on this book between you and James? Uh, sure. The book, so this book is primarily my baby, but James was absolutely indispensable in uh, certain techniques that draw upon his area of expertise. We also published a piece uh, a few years ago in the Philosopher's Magazine about the importance of math and science for philosophy. James is a meticulous thinker. He has a PhD in mathematics, and he brings that to bear on everything he writes. And we've been writing together for a very, very, very long time. And so he has a particular ear of expertise. But the process, the division of labor, where I wrote most of the sections and then he would add things from the research literature or say, hey, what about this? And then help edit that process. And then he wrote some sections as well. Are you scared that now that you've written this book, 
you will be completely called out anytime, anywhere, if you ever lose your temper in an argument, because it'll be like, oh, wow, look, the guy who wrote the book about how to have an effective argument is losing his cool. I don't think so. And I think that this is a learning process for everybody, particularly when you're in a culture that doesn't value civility or discourse or talking across the aisles. And I think that the look, I make mistakes. I wrote, wrote a book about the mistakes I made. I gave examples. I'm still making I made mistakes yesterday with my kids. I was, you know, busy and I didn't, you know, I got this dog and surgery. I make mistakes all the time. It, it's it's not about making mistakes. It's about being sincere in the way you engage people. And really one of the things I hope that how to have impossible conversations addresses is the fact that we're just not valuing these things anymore. We're not valuing open discourse. We're not valuing open dialogue. We're not valuing civility across the aisles. And even having friends who have different different political beliefs and moral beliefs and metaphysical beliefs than us. And I hope that this book makes a shift in the way we talk to each other. Peter Bogosian, thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. My pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.